History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. No, 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 this is our Euro special. History happened everywhere. I'm Jim Colson, your commentator for today's activities. Hello and welcome to the HHE Stadium here in Croydon. It is a game of two halves today and the anticipation has been building but the preparations over. The research has been done and it is time for one of these two managers ahead of us today to write their names into the history books. A Euros country, the date of a Euros tournament and a topic pulled from the hat. Today, Ryan is here representing Denmark, 2008, and blue. With Peter here for Germany, 1964, and business. It seems, on paper, an evenly matched affair. We'll see how it goes. Anything can happen now. The talk has finished. The nations expect. And you are almost ready here at the HHE Stadium for kickoff. Denmark, officially the Kingdom of Denmark. It's a parliamentary monarchy. So we've talked about these in the past. It's where you've got a king, but you've also got a prime minister at the same time. Uh, the future queen is going to be from Tasmania. No. How about that? They're going to have a, a Tasmanian queen. Oh, and a ripple of applause goes round the stadium there. You can tell the crowd are very pleased with that fact. It's one of the Nordic countries in Northern Europe southernmost of the Scandinavian countries, um, so south of Norway, down and to the left of Sweden. On its southern border of, of Denmark, you've got Germany. I'm aware of Germany, yes. Oh, okay. You're saving me a lot of time later, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you've covered a lot of ground for me. I will not be repeating this, so pay attention, people, and remember where Germany is. <laughs> uh, there is a peninsula just off the coast of Denmark called Jutland. Is that because it juts into the sea? I guess so. <laughs> Denmark was flattened. Back in the Ice Age, mile-high sheets of ice crept down from the north and just basically just leveled the entire ground. So it's super flat now. It's such that they have bridges which are now higher than the highest area of land in the country. So you can be at the top of a bridge and be higher than any other hill or other peak in the, in the landscape. Wow. They have a little plant a flag in the top of each bridge. I made it. I made it to the summit. <laughs> uh, 43,000 square kilometres in, in land area. So it's about 16,500 square miles. 15 Denmarks in a France. But it also has two autonomous territories in the North Atlantic. So there's the Faroe Islands and also Greenland. It qualifies essentially as an intercontinental state, which increases its size to 2,200,000 square kilometres, 853,000 square miles. That's three and a half Frances. It's a boost. It is a boost. And I think you'll probably find it's bigger than Germany. Just, just saying. Oh, it's competitive, is it? I'm just saying. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Population of 5.84 million people Sorry, how in many? Denmark. 5.84. 5, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm just recalling these things. <laughs> yeah. Should there be a competitive element to this? The, yeah. Uh, the capital is Copenhagen. It's wonderful, I've heard. 
Copenhagen. Wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. That's beautiful. What's that? I don't even know that. That's a song about Copenhagen. How have I not picked that up in my research? Can drink one down to wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. Etc. That's great. (laughs) I I genuinely have no idea where that comes from. That is a thing that's in my brain. Yeah. Sitting on its own. Never unmoored. That was beautiful. (laughs) I loved it. Hello. This is the voice of the internet. Peter is attempting to sing Wonderful Copenhagen, a song written by Frank Lesser for the 1952 film, Hans Christian Andersen. Considered to be the best song in the movie, Wonderful Copenhagen is sung by Andersen's apprentice who recommends that they move to the Danish city. After the film was released, the songwriter was greeted as a national hero when he visited Denmark. Thank you. The voice of the internet there, and in the run-up to this tournament, there have been quite a lot of controversy over its use in this podcast arena. People saying it holding up the uh, events and holding up the action, but I think it really proved very useful there. I think it's proved itself very worthwhile. Denmark is said to enjoy a high standard of living every year, pretty much. It ranks highly in education, in healthcare, in equality, in uh, the protection of civil liberties, uh, and in democratic governance. So it's supposedly one of the happiest countries on earth. It is an EU member. Remember being an EU oh, member? Remember those, remember those days? days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it retains, still retains the Danish krona as its currency. Some of the coins have holes in them, which doesn't mean anything. I looked it up. I thought, well, why do they have a hole in them? It, literally nothing. It's just to act as a difference between other coins. And the hole actually has a name, the significant nothing, which <laughs> if I'm ever going to have uh, an autobiography written, it's going to be called the significant nothing. I think that's uh, and a phrase I could apply to partners I've had in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and have applied that about you. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, quick Denmark facts. Home of Lego. Oh, love a bit of Lego. It's the greatest exporter of pork in the world. Wow. Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Little Mermaid. He was from Denmark. I once went to Copenhagen and yeah. the Little Mermaid statue is famously one of the things you go and see. So I trekked to the park in which The Little Mermaid is available and it was on loan somewhere abroad. Oh, <laughs> so no. I, so I looked at the plinth and then I went home. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say it had fallen under the sea. That was a red card offence, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Tolland Man. Heard of Tolland Man? Weirdly, I was reading about Tolland Man a couple of days ago. No way. Well, there you go. From Denmark. This was an Iron Age man who was in his 30s, who was suffocated by hanging in the year 280 BCE. And his body was discarded into a bog where it was preserved all these years. And it is now considered to be one of the most well-preserved bodies, uh, bog bodies to date. Yeah, I saw the pictures of it were astonishing. You see individual beard hairs. It's incredible. It's really crazy. Apart from his hands. Don't look at his hands. Skeleton hands. <laughs> they creeping up out of the bog I when they so. threw him in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess they threw him maybe face first and his hands were tied behind his back maybe. And Ooh, his hands are all, that's yeah. That's a shame. Skeleton hands. He's like, push me in further. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come back. I'm incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bog bodies are amazing. That took me down a, a, a neat little <laughs> wormhole of, um, of discovery. Yeah, that's an afternoon you're not getting back, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But Denmark has loads of them. There are absolutely tons of them. This is Champagne Podcasting. The flag. You'll recognise the flag for sure. Um, It's one of the oldest flags in the world. In fact, it is a flag that has been in most continuous use 
Legend says that it was discovered around 1219 at the Battle of Lindanese. The Danes were having a failing crusade in Estonia, and so they prayed to God and a flag fell from the sky. It had a red background with a white cross on it, and that's still the one that they're using to this day. Would you like to hear the national anthem? Let's have it. All right. That's Kong Christian, and that's used for sort of royal ceremonies and military use. I found it a little dreary. Oh, well then maybe you'd like National Anthem number two. They have two. Crack on. Between them and New Zealand, uh, they're the only two countries in the world that have two national anthems. So this is the second one. There is a lovely land. So if I was in the disco, as I frequently am. The disco? The discotheque. All right, um, Boogieing, uh, as I am prone to. Yeah. And I approached the DJ and I said to the DJ, hello, could you play the Danish national anthem for me, please? Yeah. As I also want to do. Mm-hmm. Which one would they play? Well, it depends what kind of an event was happening. It's a civil disco, I'm guessing, rather than a royal disco. Well, I mean, you're making assumptions about <laughs> well, who's disco it was I'm a question. <laughs> it was a question more than anything. Uh, this yeah. is a civil disco, correct? It's a civil disco, then they would play National Anthem number 2, There is a Lovely Land. I like that it's a lovely land. Yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? There's a little lovely land. Because most national anthems are like, we're going to kill you, foreigners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be honest, I didn't look at the lyrics. It could well be entire <laughs> verses full of, we're going to kill you. This is the land of the Vikings, after all. Yes. Well, some people would say that was quite a slow build-up, but I think very much worth it in the end for the result there. Would you like to talk about football? Let's talk about football. I mean, that's what we're here for. So, football or football, which is Danish football. You like that? It's recognisable. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of Danish people out there now going, <laughs> Yeah, well, let's add our customary apology to those people. Who Buckle actually... up, guys. <laughs> Are you ready to hear your language? Murdered is beyond recognition. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, football is the national and most popular sport of Denmark. They are known as the Dynamic Danes, which is an awesome name. They play in a traditional red shirt and white shorts. Notable for Danish footballers you might have heard of, Peter Schmeichel, also known as the world's best goalkeeper. Uh, world's best goalkeeper in 1992 and 1993. I've heard of him, which means he is colossally famous because I know nothing about football. <laughs> <laughs> His son, Kasper Schmeichel, also are now a famous goalkeeper as well. I've never heard of him. Mikael Lodrup, the best Danish player of all time. And Jean Dahl Thomassen, the joint top scorer in the history of Denmark with 52 goals. He's now currently the assistant manager of the national team, who we're going to be talking about a lot. 
the fans. They are known as the Rolligans. Rolligans? The Rolligans, yeah. Does that translate yeah. to something? Or is it... it does. So Rollig means calm, and it is the almost the opposite of hooligans. So it's like the collaboration between those two words, Rollig oh, and hooligans. Oh, people who just storm your town and sort of rearrange the furniture and uh, exactly nice, right. relax time. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> like known to be calm, quiet, well-mannered fans. In fact, in 1984, they won the UNESCO Fair Play Trophy. Pretty cool, right? I like Rolligans. I love that. The Rolligans are coming. Get the soft furnishings out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the history. So the oldest sports club in continental Europe was established in 1876. It was the Bold Club. Uh-huh. So it was established in 1876. And at the time, football is being introduced to Denmark. I mean, not quite sure how. Like most people think it's by British sailors who are shipping in and saying, let's kick a ball around. And they're like, sure. But there is also a theory that there are Danish expats that were living in Britain at the time and they brought the game home with them as well. So either way, football was introduced into Denmark around about 1876. And in fact, 1878, just two years later, Cubenhaven's Bold Club add football to their roster of the sports that they do. And uh, KB, as they're known, they later become known as FC Copenhagen. Aha. So yeah, a club that goes back with quite a lot of history. Oh, you can't stop history like that. Ten years later, there are thereabouts, 1889, the Danish Football Association is formed and they start the first domestic league outside of the UK. And they are called the Dansk Boldspil Union or the DBU. It translates as the Danish Ball Games Union. You'll see it on my badge here, right in the centre. I see that, yes. DBU. In England, we have the FA, they have the DBU. The DBU sounds like a secret police of some kind. It does. You don't want to be tracked down by the DBU, right? <laughs> the FBI, the DBU. DBU are knocking. Oh, yeah. it's 3 a.m. and KGB. it's the DBU at the door. <laughs> Would you like to play for our team? Oh, well, this wasn't as bad as I was fearing. <laughs> yeah. So also in 1889, the Copenhagen Football Championship starts, known as the Football Turneringen. 1896 KB, the sports club, they receive an invitation from the Olympic Games founder, a Baron Pierre de Coubertin, uh, and they get an invite to participate in the 1896 Olympics. Uh, I just love the images in my head of 1896 Olympics. And they were smoking while they were playing. Right, exactly. <laughs> With a, pi- a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in like woolen sports gear. Yeah, exactly. Just suits. Yeah. Uh, right, so they, they get invited to go and play uh, in a demonstration match against Greece. So KB decides, yeah, sure, we're going to take part, but we're not going to send an entire team. And just to remind you, 11 players are at least needed football team. They sent two. I'm curious as to which were the two positions that they decided were critical to. <laughs> the forward like, and the keeper, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the keeper's like, yep. Just do your thing, really. Just, it's just you. Uh, I'll stay here, uh, protecting the goal. Yeah. You can take care of everything else. Uh, bear in mind, this is just a demonstration match, right? So anyway, Eugene Schmidt and Holger Nielsen, they were the two that were sent. And when they get there, they start going around the docks. Not for any, you know. <laughs> We've all motives. been travelling, Ryan. We know what happens. <laughs> they go around the docks. They pick up some Danish sailors. This is something worse. <laughs> <laughs> and some businessmen, some random businessmen, and they form their own little team. There's a movie to be made in this, I swear. And so they get these guys and I guess they train them up a little bit and then they play the match, which is interesting because we don't really know the result of the match. It wasn't officially well, chaos, reported I would anywhere. imagine, was the result of the match. <laughs> Our two dockers and a tax accountant <laughs> running up the left wing. <laughs> 
Oh, and a very cheeky fact there. I don't think anyone was expecting that one. We don't know what happened because the Greek crown prince Constantine, he gave an order not to mention unofficial sports. He only wanted the official sports to be mentioned in the press. And so that's what happened. And it wasn't until much later on that a Russian Olympic committee member who was there at the time and witnessed it, he reported that there was over 6,000 people attended the game and that Denmark won the game either 9-0 or 15-0. Wow. Yeah, which is a lot of the goals. It's a lot of goals. Yeah. That spry sailor up front, probably <laughs> piercing winger. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, hopefully they, they brought them back with them. And <laughs> yeah, this guy's got amazing. They really lucked out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so there you go. That's the story of that. 1898, the Scottish club, Queen's Park, are an amateur team. They go head to head with a Danish select 11. 11 this time. <laughs> <laughs> We've learned. <laughs> and that's at the International Festival of Sports and Gymnastics in Copenhagen. 11,000 people turn up to watch them. And it's said that that's the game which made football popular in Denmark. 1906, a Danish team is invited to participate in the Intercalated Olympic Games. Which, do you know the Intercalated Olympic Games? I do not know the Intercalated Olympic Games. I did not either, so I had to look it up. It's essentially another Olympic Games. (laughs) Someone else was like, I'm going to do an Olympic Games as well. So there were two sets. There was the Olympic Games and then there was the Intercalated Olympic Games. Anyway, Denmark went along and they defeated a Greek team. They played two clubs from the Ottoman Empire, which (laughs) dates this somewhat. Those canny Ottomans (laughs) known for their forward attack. (laughs) (laughs) And they win their first major international tournament major i'm gonna question major well (laughs) the the intercalated olympic Olympic games (laughs) anyway the dbu uh, they refuse to recognize it they go nope um (laughs) they don't recognize the win because they say that denmark isn't considered an official team they're just amateurs still right these are just dock workers and a baker and his mate so 1908, two years later, an official team takes part. <laughs> They're like, right, we should probably officialize. So they take part in the 1908 Summer Olympics in London. And they come second. They win the silver medal. So they're a pretty good team. 1912, they win another Olympic silver medal. So they're really doing well. And in fact, they are ranked best team in the world at that point, which I don't quite understand given they were given the silver. I'm pretty sure the gold <laughs> team were like, well... How is that possible? (laughs) But there you go. Right. So then we head into the wilderness years, 1920 to 1948, and international competition starts to dwindle out. The DBU thinks there's no future in international games. And so they want the Danish players to focus on amateur football at home. And so they play friendly matches, occasionally participating in like regional championships with other Nordic countries. But internationally, globally, they kind of come off the scene. And not until 1964, when Denmark qualify to the European Championship, championship uh, where they finish fourth and the dbu goes hmm maybe there's money to be made in this so we're going to allow professional players in the national team it's amazing what that arrival of that first suitcase full of cash does to opinions (laughs) about the validity of a tournament (laughs) right and so they do Uh, professional players start appearing in the national squad and also in the championships as well so this is where it really starts to professionalize 
1982 is really where it starts to kick in in terms of national football team. You've got five appearances in the World Cup where they reached the quarterfinals on three occasions. They were champions of the Confederation Cup in 1995. They were ranked number three team in the world in 1997. They qualified six times in a row for the Euros between 1984 and 2004 and became champions in 1992. A quick one-two of facts. Very fascinating how they managed to slip them out as quickly as they do there. So we're now into the, the 2000s and we're lead, heading towards my 2008 Euro tournament, which is the one that we're going to be talking about. So 2000, they were considered the worst team of the Euros. They had three defeats and they had a goal difference of zero, meaning they didn't score any and had eight put past them in those three games. So not great. Because of that, they appointed a new manager, their former captain, a guy called Morten Olsen. The squad are then dubbed the Olsen Gang because there is a series of Danish movies based on like this criminal who was a bit of a genius called Egon Olsen. Aha. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, the team are all called the Olsen Gang. 2002, Denmark is defeated 3-0 by England in round 16 of the World Cup. 2004, they're eliminated in the quarterfinals of the Euros by the Czech Republic. And in 2006, they just fail to qualify for the World Cup. Dark times for Danish football. But, you know, it's not terrible, but it's not great. Which brings us to Euro 2008. And Ryan will really want to impress here. He has... Uh taken some criticism from the analysts, from the commentators, particularly Paul Dursley has been very harsh on him in recent times, but uh, he's hoping to sway the judge with this one. Euro 2008. <gasps> Yay! Whoosh. Sound effects. Woo, crowd and, goes wild. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Okay, so the qualifiers for the UEFA Euro 2008. If, if you're unaware, the Euro tournament, bunch of teams from Europe all competing to win. It's like a mini version of the World Cup just within Europe itself. To enter, you have to qualify. Uh, you've got Group F, which is where Denmark is. Within that group, you've got the countries of Spain, Sweden, Northern Ireland, Latvia, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. It starts off positively. Denmark beat Iceland, 2-0. They draw against Northern Ireland, which is less good, 0-0. They beat Liechtenstein, 4-0. And then they <laughs> lose against Spain, 2-1. Understandable. So they've had two wins, one draw, and one loss. That's their position going into the next game. The next game is against Sweden. This is the first UEFA qualifying fixture between these two. They're going to play two games eventually. Um, but this is a significant rivalry between these two. These are the neighbouring countries. They're on the borders, but they have history that goes back a long, 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 long time that was very bloody and very aggressive. Now, more recently, that rivalry has become much more friendly. They, they see each other as neighbours and brothers in arms. But still, there is a huge rivalry when it comes to the sports, and they both want to win. It's a derby, isn't it? It's it is sort of definitely a derby, yeah. So they played first in 1913, and of 107 games, 46 wins have gone to Sweden and 41 to Denmark. Ooh. So it's pretty close. So, 2nd of June. 2007. Denmark are hosting the game. 42,083 fans in attendance, one of which is Jesper Jacobsen. Here's his recollection of the build-up to the game. I was 19 and uh, I was finishing up uh, high school, so I brought my books along and uh, my stepfather brought some beers along. And we mostly, mostly did the beers. We, we live on the other side of the country, but Denmark isn't that big, so it's, it's about a five-hour train ride, I think. And I remember being a bit late. 
we we walked from the train station to to Park and Stadium, and it was so crowded when we got there. Such anticipation, so many fans who who had gotten there early, especially a lot of Swedes. There must have been ten thousand Swedes in a forty thousand seater stadium. So so they were really loud and and boisterous, and and as I said, it's a, it's a it's a very friendly rivalry. So so it wasn't you know mean atmosphere, just a, a fabulous day out. The team wasn't doing that good. Denmark was regular qualifiers for the Euros actually ever since nineteen eighty four. I think we we qualified every single time, winning famously in in ninety two. But the two thousand eight turn was was the first one the first euro since then which we, we were about to miss and i remember there was quite a bit of disappointment around the, the national side at the time and the denmark coach morten olsen he wasn't allowed to be the coach for that sweden game so he was i could i don't know at home or in the stands he wasn't wasn't on the bench anyways the team wasn't that great the outlook wasn't that great the coach was sus- suspended but this is the game against the 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 biggest rivals that that Denmark has. So we were up for it, and I do remember the, that Parken Stadium was absolutely full. So there we go. That's Jesper there. I'll be honest with you, the team wasn't great, the outlet wasn't great. <laughs> this is a familiar story as an England person. <laughs> <laughs> and also the... Uh, did, did I mention 92? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly like, yeah, well, in 66, we did win the World Cup, you know. <laughs> Can I just ask that you don't rile the Vikings? <laughs> just they're listening, Pete. So, yeah, so that's that's Jesper. Yeah, I, I don't want to leave it too much longer. Um, so let's get into the stadium with Jesper and let's hear his thoughts on the game itself. We were held up trying to get into the stadium because obviously they have to frisk everybody and, and people were in high spirits. So, you know, it's like, like the security check in the airport when you people aren't really ready for, for what's going to happen. So so everybody took a long time. So we got into the stadium. We, we didn't make it to the national anthem and we were pissed about that because that's really a highlight. So we found our seats just as Sweden went ahead. Within half an hour, Sweden are 3-0 up. And behind the Danish goals were, were 10,000 Swedes. So just a sea of yellow, obviously having a fantastic time and really drowning out a completely stunned and, and silent Danish crowd. And then shortly before half time, we got a goal back. So made it, made it uh, 3-1. It's a spark of hope, and it, it and it was. So I remember being down, but not down and out. And then the second goal came fairly early in the second half. Obviously now it's 3-2, and people are really optimistic. And when the equaliser came, that's the loudest, most boisterous stadium I've ever been in. It's, it, it was so okay. much fun. We were going to win four or five to three, and we were going to, you know, have <laughs> the party of a lifetime in Copenhagen. We would have absolutely sung Sailor op Aon, which is we're sailing up the creek, we're sailing down again. So people will be, you know, locking arms and then bobbing and weaving sideways. 
So it's sort of a drunken Mexican wave or something like that. But it does, it really does like, sound, sounds like it's sort of your Irish drinking song. It's Sailor up at Uin. Sailor again. Only in the, you know, the voices of 40,000. And then the song most commonly associated with national team football in Denmark is um, the one that the 1986 team, it's called Recepten, which roughly translates as the recipe, i.e. the recipe for success. It was sung by Frank Arneson in the original recording, and it's still, you know, that's that's the one. Recepton. That sounds amazing. What a, <laughs> right? what a time. I want to be linked arms with a pair of Danes oh, right now. Oh, <laughs> man. Isn't that awesome, though? Oh, that's great. Right. So, quick recap on, on what Jesper was just saying, because I feel that you may have been thrown by the music there. So let's I was just, carried away by the right. tunes. <laughs> so, so, Sweden go three goals up, right, within the first half hour of the game. Denmark come back with three goals of their own, and things are great. But in the 89th minute, things change. Denmark's Christian Poulsen and Sweden's Marcus Rosenberg, they start getting into a little tussle in the Danish penalty area. And Rosenberg hits Poulsen, but Poulsen turns round and punches Rosenberg full in the stomach. The referee, Herbert Fundell, confers with his assistant and he sends off Poulsen. So Denmark are now down to 10 men. Bearing in mind, this is the 89th minute, which means you've got one minute left to go of the game. He then turns and he gives the penalty to Sweden. So arch rivals Sweden now have one minute to score a penalty to win the game. Things are not looking great for Denmark, but then things get worse. I'll let Jesper explain. So I didn't see the moment where Christian Poulsen hit Marcus Rosenberg in the, in the stomach. So I, I didn't pick up on what had happened. And, and the German referee just suddenly pointed to the spot and it was what, what happened. And it was, a, it was a penalty for Sweden. And it was devastating, absolutely deflating. You know, sort of the air went out of the stadium. Uh, Poulsen was, you know, a decent player, but a bit of a hothead. I, I was watching the, the, the ref, I think, and, and I remember sort of... Uh, out of the corner of my eye, a figure climbing over, you know, the ad stands and, and making his way onto the pitch. And I sort of yelled out just at the moment he lashed out the referee. And uh, thankfully, a, a Danish defender, uh, Michael Grafgaard, got in the way. He only touched the referee's neck, but he didn't get a punch in. So he was impeded by the Danish defenders and he was just sort of stood there and I think Aga spoke to him and he he sort of <laughs> made his way back and was picked up by stewards. And then the, the ref left the, left the pitch and we were just sat there. We didn't know what, what was going to happen. 
there was at that point it was just murmuring and and uh, confusion what just happened and as i said I, I i think at least half the stadium hadn't seen the incident because it was just in a flash so people were calling and texting friends and asking what are they saying on on the telly and trying to figure out what's going on while we were waiting a few idiots made it onto the pitch and i remember thinking these guys really aren't helping because how's the ref going to feel secure returning to the pitch at this point and and i was actually quite angry not just with the invader himself and the other pitch invaders but but also with you know with with the security staff and think why why aren't they closing this down within half an hour we were just sort of told denmark has lost please leave the stadium so that was the weirdest feeling it was so loud and boisterous and optimistic just a few moments ago we just had to leave the stadium and we were sure that we were going to win not just win but win famously perhaps the best game ever between denmark and sweden and suddenly we we'd lost we'd lost to sweden and we were going to certainly miss the euros and that was just it i remember just filing out of the stadium and and meeting swedes outside they were basically just as confused it was just so weird because it it's been it's it, it to this day still is the best game i ever saw but it had such a strange conclusion wow right <laughs> so let me recap so the referee awards the penalty for the punch that Paulson did after it red carded the player a danish fan clambers out of the seating runs onto the field and throws a punch at the referee it's <laughs> famously worked it's missed so many times in the past i mean why not give it a go. decision <laughs> yeah uh, but he, he sort of misses i guess because he's a bit drunk and he ends up sort of grabbing the ref around the neck a Danish defender, uh, Michael Gravgaard, he gets between the fan and the referee and he starts talking to him. The fan leaves the pitch where he's picked up by stewards and immediately seized, right? The referee and the assistants get together and they have a quick discussion on the pitch and then they all just walk off the field. The game is abandoned at that point. The stadium, as as Jesper says, is totally unsure what's happened because obviously they didn't hear the conversation that the referees have and they're just still trying to understand what's going on. An announcement is made saying that the game is over and that Sweden have won 3-0. So they've just removed all of the Danish goals. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, the teams then just leave the pitch. The game is completely done. So all this, the fans are now just sitting in the stadium like, what now? And of course, nothing happens except... Another fan runs onto the pitch, takes the ball from the penalty spot, which of course never got kicked, runs down the the pitch with it and kicks it in the Sweden's goal. (laughs) (laughs) A consolation goal, I don't know. (laughs) Finally, a third fan then comes on the pitch and he just runs across the pitch. So what happened next? This is a quiz question. (laughs) (laughs) Because honestly, it's pretty hard to predict right now. Yeah. We went for for a few beers and sort of just uh, vented. The guy who invaded, the guy who, who lashed out the ref, my, my stepdad and, and I were blaming him, but the entire nation was blaming this guy. Within days, he was just massively unpopular. And he was dubbed uh, Fotballtossen, which means sort of the football loony. And stories came out that he actually lived in, in Malmö. So he was living in Sweden and conspiracy theories. Did he try to, to help Sweden in some, some way? And it's so, so strange. That was in in the sort of in in the tabloid press, but he he was a figure in in sort of serious news media as well because uh, the Danish FA was seeking uh, compensation. Eventually, they they sued him, I think, and and he actually, but he was fined, and 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 the Danish FA was they had to to play their next 
the next uh, qualifiers, we had a qualifier against Spain coming up. And initially they had to play that, I think it was a 250-kilometer radius away from Copenhagen. And then I think UEFA sort of realized that Denmark isn't that big. <laughs> so they scaled down the punishment. And there was one corner of the country called Tister, which is sort of in the far northwestern corner of Denmark. And that was the only stadium within the professional ranks in Danish football. But it's it's a very, very small ground. We're talking non-league stuff. And uh, I, I I just remember the notion of the Danish national team having to go to Leopuda Stadium. It's I can't even translate that word. It means sort of muddy pitch stadium or something like that. <laughs> and it's, it's not even ironically, that's the name of the stadium. So... <laughs> Right. Oh, that, uh, Jesper Jacobson there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> awesome. What a guy. Right. So post-game, there was immediately a, a disciplinary hearing took place. Uh, that took place on the 8th of June, so like a week later. And it was to confirm the decision to award the match to Sweden. Pending the decision, the Danish FA the DBU, they suspended all tickets for Denmark's next two qualifiers because I guess they felt like there was a chance that they weren't going to be playing those. Uh, and the results of the hearing were this. Sweden was awarded the match, 3-0. Denmark was fined €66,000. Denmark was told to play their next four home qualification matches, i.e. the rest of the competition, at least 250 kilometres, 160 miles away from Copenhagen. Um, and the next match against Liechtenstein was to be behind closed doors. So pretty strict. Interestingly, that fact has attracted a lot of attention recently from other history podcasts. So we may not see it still that history happened everywhere for too much longer. I guess we'll see what happens in the close season. Uh, the Danish FA were undeniably shocked by the scope of the rulings, in their <laughs> own words, uh, and immediately uh, announced that they were intending to appeal. On the 5th of July, then, um, an appeal has taken place and UEFA decides to replace their original verdict. They decide that Sweden should continue to be awarded the 3-0 win. That wasn't changing, but they reduced the fines by half. So it's now only €30,000. Parken Stadium in Copenhagen was then closed for the four official competition matches two games were then de deferred for like a probationary period of two years the two teams so sweden and denmark then met again for their second qualifying match remember this is they have to play each other twice one one at each other's home um, and they met in stockholm on the 8th of september and the game ended in a draw nil nil my guess is trying to reduce as much chance of drama as possible. Uh, yeah. They're going, no, you take it. No, you take it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Sweden eventually qualified for yeah, UEFA Euro 2008 and Denmark was eliminated. They didn't make it through. So I want to talk about just a couple of things here. Um, first of all, the law and the referee. In my head, and I was talking to Jesper about this, I was saying, look, with just one minute left of the game, would it not have made sense for the referee to just, uh, rather than like abandoning the game, the guy had left the pitch, they could have just taken the penalty, had the draw or, you know, or the win, and then that would have decided things, let the game decide things rather than just a sort of abandoning it at that stage. Well, so I looked into this, I talked to some referees, and I spoke to them about the law of the game. And the law of the game talks about stopping and restarting play when an outside agent enters the field of play. Now, it doesn't matter if the outside agent is a supporter or whether it's a toddler that runs onto the pitch accidentally or an animal or just like an object that 
falls from the sky or is, you know, blows in on the wind. The rule is play must stop if there is interference and the game restarted with a dropped ball, which is you've two players facing each other. You drop the ball in front of them and away you go from there. So depending on who or what this outside agent is and the danger that they present, the referee should attempt to remove them. So if a great white shark falls out of the sky onto the pitch, it might be best that the referee doesn't try and move the shark off the pitch <laughs> or ask it to move. Uh, law five of the laws of the game says that if they can't remove the outside agent safely, the referee should abandon the match. So in that instance, you would think, well, the guy had already left. So maybe you could have just continued it. But then there's another law which says if spectators are attacking players or a match official, it is no longer safe to continue the match and it should be abandoned immediately. Wow. So he was following the rule of the law. So in this instance, the fan ran on the pitch, attacked the official, the referee. The referee brought the match officials together. They left the field. They abandoned the game. Uh, they wrote a report which was about the incident and wrote down what the status of the game was when they left it. And at that point... They're kind of done. Everything else is then out of their control. It all goes over to UEFA, the tournament holders, um, as they have their own set of rules that they then need to apply. So the referee doesn't declare who wins or loses. They just follow the, the rules as set out. You know, the competition authority decides that for them. Oh, he's really bringing home the Danish bacon. So, it, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that if you're the referee, you have no reason to trust that the field is now secure, right? A, a fan has run on the pitch and attacked you. That doesn't, the local security staff that are in the stadium clearly aren't able to control the fans from getting onto the field. So it was only really the fact that the players got in the way and intervened and prevented the fan from getting to the, the referee that things weren't actually made worse. So, you know, in in that instance, the referee just didn't consider it to be safe. And so that was the end of it. I mean, he, he it's it's not his job to then go, do you know what, make a, get a get better game. It was only a minute and so on. It's, it's his job to go, this is the rules. Yeah. As soon as the referee starts going, you know, I think I'm going to spend it this time to make a good game. You've got problems, haven't you? So I've got some a lot of sympathy for that guy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, the security at the stadium took a lot of uh, the hit for allowing that to happen. There was a, a an editorial in, in one of the uh, more serious papers in Danish press along the, you know, the fact that there could have been serious consequences. You know, and if one fan can get through, five can get through. And if five get through, then hundreds could just suddenly you just got the whole the whole pitch is invaded. So abandoning really was the only way that the referee could have acted in that instance. Uh, you know, and it acts as a punishment for the future as well, right? Like you came here to watch football, you ruined it. So there's no football, right? You don't get to continue to watch football and also behave poorly. It's an incentive for supporters to manage their own as well, to not encourage people and cheer people on when they run onto the pitch, but to say, don't do that. Otherwise we've all just wasted our time and our money for, for being here. Yeah. And you know what? Like this was high profile. This was in the press. It was watched on TV by everyone. It was a national game. So this could have prevented this from happening in other matches. So, you know, this was a good example that was being said. So who was the referee? The referee was Herbert Fandel. He was a German referee. He was once voted both second best and third worst referee in the Bundesliga. Which is you, the, you know you're doing well if you're both of those. If you if you are angering and pleasing people in equal measures, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you're in the middle somewhere, presumably. <laughs> uh, he was in charge for the 2006 UEFA Cup final and the 2007 Champions League final. So someone with clout. Uh, he ended his career just two years after this in 2009, where he then went on to serve as the German FA's referee commissioner, uh, head of that, um, since 2010. So he's still doing it to this day. So this is someone with real reputation and credibility. Oh, and he's played through that fact beautifully. 
And speaking about it, he later said in an interview, at first I thought, why is this happening to me? <laughs> it was a huge soccer game up to the 88th minute. What unfortunately gets lost in the reporting is that it was one of the best games I've ever whistled. It was such a fantastic offensive game with numerous chances on both sides, an incredible game that deserved a different ending. By the way, up to that point, it was absolutely fair. I only had to pull out two yellow cards. It was a pleasure for me to be allowed to accompany this game up to this situation. Oh, it's heartbreaking, really, isn't it? It's such a great game that was just demolished by an idiotic last minute. Absolutely. Oh, and he's played through that fact beautifully. So let's talk about the football tossing. Cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a great name, football tossing. So immediately after the game, the pitch invader, he becomes like this target of yeah, all the anger. This isn't going to end well for him, as, I don't as, think. <laughs> as Jesper was saying, yeah, there were serious threats against him, right? So publication of his name was banned. It was censored by court order. Uh, and most of the press complied. Um, newspaper Extra Bladet. I'm not pronouncing that right, I'm sure. Uh, extra Bladet. Uh, they were just identifying him by the initial R rather than giving names or anything. The Danish tabloid, BT, however, ran a petition asking the public for help in identifying him. <laughs> There's always one, isn't there? <laughs> Going further by publishing his full name and residential status in their online edition. Oh, Yeah. And they uh, they announced him as fa- the fan was 29-year-old Dane Ronnie Norvig. Well, the R checks out. It does, yeah, Ronnie. Uh, they weren't lying. <laughs> so, outed in the press, uh, Norvig tries to get ahead of all this, and so he does a quick interview with the paper Extra Bladet, uh, saying, I want to say I'm sorry to everyone in Denmark. I spoiled a fantastic evening for so many. And everyone ex- kind of accepted that apology. Um, really? That was kind of the end of things. Wow. No, it wasn't. No. No. <laughs> okay, That was not more. sufficient. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's really bringing home the Danish bacon. In fact, Norvig was taken to court and there he said that he had drunk about 15 to 18 beers before the match and had little memory of the actual incident. He said that he was angered by the the red card on Paulson and he wanted to tell the referee that his decision was, in quotes, nonsense. So uh, he said that he couldn't recall actually attacking the referee at all. And he, again, he apologised. He said, it was incredibly stupid of me. I want to apologise to Denmark, Sweden and the referee for my inhuman behaviour. I think there's probably a longer list than that, frankly. Football, referees, <laughs> officials, the law, anybody who cares about anything. Just, just please, <laughs> just everybody I'm so sorry. In the world, I'm so sorry. Everything about this was a terrible, terrible idea. Right. So the court case ends and uh, judgment comes in and he's given a suspension sentence of 30 days in prison so he doesn't have to do it if any does anything else then he'll have to go in and do those 30 days the prosecution however didn't find that sufficient uh, so they appealed and the sentence was then um, changed to a 20-day sentence that had to be served so he goes into prison he does 20 days in 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 prison so famously if you go into prison as a sort of as a sex offender you, you, you're a marked man. I, I can only imagine it was a similar experience going to prison as the guy who ruined that moment for all of Denmark. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it works in, in Denmark, what Danish prisons are like. I, either way, going to prison for a month is not a great thing. You can't argue with facts. 
Anyway, he does it. So Ronnie Norvig, he does his time. He comes out of prison, at which point the uh, DBU then decides they're going to sue him. And so he's he's taken back to court for commercial damage resultant from their disqualification. And uh, they claim 7 million Danish krona, that's 940,000 euros for the loss of ticket sales, and 1,900,000, that's 255,000 euros for related commercial losses. So just over a million euros. Um, Do we know Ronnie's job at this time? Is he he a high earner? (laughs) It it was said that he couldn't afford that. Uh, Yeah. However, because of the security at Parkin Stadium and how inadequate it was for allowing him on the pitch, instead they brought that down and they sued for around about 215,000 euros with uh, another 120,000 for the commercial related losses. So just over 300,000 euros. So he appealed directly to the DBU for compassion. And the fine was then lowered to 250,000 Danish krona, 35,000 euros. That seems like a more payable fine, to be honest. Than a million pounds, <laughs> a million euros. Like, well, I guess that's everything I'm ever going to earn, ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> I will be over the moon with that one. Yeah, and at this point, it's, attitudes slight starts to change. People feel like, all right, enough, right? Enough's enough, right? It was a stupid mistake. We all, we've all made stupid mistakes. He's just done it on a massive scale. It's an epic stupid mistake, but it is still a stupid mistake. Right, exactly. Um, and so time passes, four and a half years pass, and uh, Ronnie Norvig goes on to give a televised interview with Go Afton Denmark. And uh, here's a clip of it. <laughs> Ja, fordi det er jo oplagt at spørge, hvad er det dog, der får dig til at reagere på den her måde? There is no apology that is good enough to excuse the way I reacted. But the closest I could is nine months earlier, my mom got, got hospitalized in a mental hospital with a heart depression and psychosis. And I had used the last nine months to support my mom. And this was the first time that I could go out and have fun with my friends. I think it was a year's frustration that went out in 13 seconds, which sadly hurt somebody that had nothing to do with me. Ronnie, the whole of Denmark was mad at you. So what do you want to say to all the people who are really mad at you or what you did? I will always stand by it and apologize, which I have already done. I will happily give my apologies again and again. It was an action that was unforgivable in many many eyes. But luckily, in many cases, I have been forgiven, and I will be thankful for that forever. So how has the last four and a half years been since this match? It has been the largest down in my life, but at the same time it has been the largest up, because I am now a dad to a beautiful little girl and a beautiful boy. So you have a wife? No, I have a girlfriend. Oh, you have a girlfriend. So she has both been a spectator to what happened on the field and what has happened to your life since. How has she taken that? She has been the most fantastic support you can ever imagine. She has cheered me up when I was down 
with panic anxiety and she has cheered me up when I have cried, she has cheered me up when I lost my mom and she has supported me in a way I could never thank her enough for. Okay, two things. Number one, way to go Danish people for translating all that for us. That is absolutely How fantastic. How awesome was that, right? <laughs> yeah. Secondly, oh, I've got tears in my eyes. This is awful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Firstly, I should say thank you to, to those for translating it. So, um, yeah, well, first of all, um, a big thank you to um, Reddit user Alexander Supertramper for finding the clip. I was struggling to find it and, and he was able to identify that. It, it was then translated because, of course, I don't understand Danish. Or famously can't say any Danish words well. <laughs> Indeed. So I, a huge thank you to Marius Sorensen, who um, took the time out to take the, the clip and, and translate that for me into essentially a script that I was then able to give to Tor Bagen and Karen Brund who was going to act that out for us. Oh, thanks so much, guys. That was really that was really vivid and amazing. Yeah, it was great stuff. So that's Ronnie Norvig, the story wow. of him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm going to leave it there and I feel like people should leave it there too. Well, it's part of the history of, of the game and uh, it is what it is, is. I think this is my opportunity to perhaps uh, remind people that the topic was blue and I'm fairly clear here as to the way in which blue has been really rather magnificently uh, covered it. Yeah, there you go. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was just about to say, and that's your blue. <laughs> Nicely depressing moment. Oh, that's a delightful touch for a big man. So let's talk about Christian Paulson just just as a last last little thing. So there's a lot of focus on Ronnie and, you know, rightly so. He, he did what he did. But I was curious about the reaction to to Christian Paulson, right? This is the guy who punched a man on, it all off, on the really, pitch. Didn't he? <laughs> he, he did, yeah. He sparked, he sparked, lit the fire. So Paulson was, he was red carded, as we know, and all the events followed because of what he did. So uh, obviously he did encounter some blame for the loss. Someone called the police on him, in fact, and demanded that he be arrested for violent conduct. Frederick, the crown prince of Denmark, he criticised his behaviour, saying it was terrible and a very embarrassing behaviour on the Danish side. Not great. When from you're... a crown prince, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the I'll da- take that from a guy at the bus stop, but when a crown <laughs> prince is saying, I'm like, oh, this is bad. Maybe I did something <laughs> not right. Yeah. The Danish justice minister, Lenny Espersen, called for an involuntary national team hiatus to be given to Paulson. <laughs> Involuntary. And perhaps worse, Copenhagen Chief Inspector, Police Chief Inspector, Fleming Steen Munch, went further, saying, It is about time to set an example. It has almost become acceptable to be violent on the pitch. But violence should not be accepted on the pitch or in society. The TV images clearly show how the Swede is punched in the stomach. My immediate opinion is that according to the penal code, the act will lead to a 30-day imprisonment. Ooh, we can have Ronnie in prison. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. However, reeling that back in slightly... Uh, His boss, the police chief and superintendent, later said that the comments about possible charges were um, premature. Football (laughs) football is a contact sport, he says. So, you know, the starting point is that the sport's own courts should handle this, not the police. And you know what he used? He used uh, violence on the hockey rink in ice hockey as an example or evidence about the acceptability of violence in sport, you know, and that it's not subject to the court of law. So anyway, so Paulson was blamed. 
His name was essentially stained publicly. He became less popular than he perhaps otherwise would have been. But it could have been worse. It seems that Ronnie was a massively lucky distraction for him. (laughs) And in fact, Paulson later said, "Um, I was involved in a tussle with a Swedish player who I felt had provoked me twice. I saw red and I hit him. I would like to apologize to my teammates and the general public. It's the most stupid thing I've ever done. Morten Olsen, the manager, he told me afterwards, there is no place on this stage for this sort of thing. And I have to agree. It happened at a time when we'd pulled back Sweden's lead and were in the driving seat. I can't condone it. His manager, Morten himself, said it was a black day for Danish football. Christian Paulsen wasn't the only one to blame for the episode, but that doesn't excuse what he did. Ultimately, Paulsen was banned for just three competitive matches. See, there's a, you can see the other story here where the penalty is had. Sweden win by taking the penalty. That guy is entirely the villain. Poor old Ronnie's still sitting in the stands having had his 2,000 beers or however many it was. Yep. And uh, that, I mean... Goes back to his life. They weren't about to win, were they? They were in, they were in trouble. So poor really old Ronnie are. really took the heat there. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to end on the Christian Paulson thing because I feel like in many ways he was protected, guarded from what would have been a really sticky incident for him to have got himself caught in. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable! Now that is podcasting! Um, that's it for my, my story. The only thing I would like to mention is that obviously you, you might be aware if you're listening to this podcast recently, we're in you know the current Euros. That's why we're doing this special. And uh, the Danish player, Christian Eriksen, that was involved in an incident where he suffered, um, I think it was a cardiac arrest on the pitch. And he was taken off rather dramatically um, to hospital and he is now recovering. Um, so just from History Happened Everywhere to uh, Christian Eriksen, his family and the Danish supporters, just uh, wish you all the best and, and wish him well. Best wishes, guys. And thank you for your, everything you contributed to that because uh, you really made that an excellent, excellent half of football history. And the referee blows his whistle, brings proceedings to a close at half time. All right, yes, and uh, as you know, Ryan, I've provided some snacks. Um, by provided, I mean I made you prepare some snacks. So do you want to just talk about what uh, what we've got here? No, I will, in fact. <laughs> no, you do it. You tell me what you've got here. Okay, so what I have in front of me is half a baguette that has had a hole carved through the middle and a frankenfurter shoved down the middle of it, covered in ketchup. Yes, that is an exactly accurate description. It is a bit of long bread with a hole drilled in, with a frankfurter sausage sloshed in ketchup yammed in it yeah. now this is a ket first okay this is an east german snack Ooh. because of course the hamburger was a capitalist western pig invention uh-huh. so they invented their uh, and this was literally invented so it took apparently the state gastronomic research center <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. invent the sausage shoved in a hole in some bread right and this is traditional for german footballers this to eat this because this seems unhealthy for uh, a german footballer yeah it's not for the footballers i guess it's one for the fans but uh, importantly, and we are fans it's, it's an east german concoction so lovely looking back to the days of east germany well as a pork loving danish fan i'm ready to eat my goods well there you go so you have a bunch of that and then uh, wash it down with a delicious shot of jägermeister how is it right it's pretty good okay i'm I'm not gonna bite into it yet because i'm also going to tell you why on earth i have given you a shot of jägermeister okay 
bit of German football history. We're in half time, so this is nowhere near my time period. But yeah, I thought yeah, it was yeah. quite interesting. I came across it, right? So apparently the one of the first official shirt sponsorships in any European league hmm. was in Germany. Nice. This was in 1973, right? In the German Bundesliga. And basically what happened was there was this football team called Braunschweig. Braunschweig. Uh, and they were doing pretty bad financially. They were in a hole. And they happened to be located near the factory where they make the drink Jägermeister. Oh. So the guys at Jägermeister said, well, we would like to sponsor you. And the German league said, so we do not allow sponsorship. That's crazy. We don't want to put your logo on the shirt. So what they did was they gave the team a lot of money and the team changed their club crest to the Jägermeister logo <laughs> and thereby got around the rule of not being able to have a sponsored show. Wow. So it's a stag or something, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of Anthony stag. And um, they had to apparently make some tweaks to it so it wasn't quite the Jägermeister logo, but it was the Jägermeister sure, logo. Sure, yeah. So that, that, that Instantly recognisable. Absolutely. So then that way the club got the money, the sponsors got their sponsorship and the league eventually Eventually, kind of went, yeah, okay, I guess we allow sponsorship now because that didn't work at all. I like being an East German football fan. It's not bad, is this it? This is a tasty, tasty, tasty snack. Well, you'll find out more about that later. But yes, this is my contribution to the halftime munchings. I'd love to have been in the lab when I meant, have we thought of shoving a frankfurter in some bread? <laughs> oh my God, I love it. <laughs> We've tried a bap. We've tried a croissant. <laughs> have you tried a bagel? It's got the hole yeah. and everything. That's beg the question of what were the rejected <laughs> the rejected ideas they had. <laughs> Can we balance the sausage on top of the bread? No, it'll just roll off. <laughs> I want some more ketchup. Well, an excellent first half, Ryan. I found it very compelling. Could you bring my drink when you're um, yeah. going? Oh, I need to go over and be interviewed, don't I? Oh, yeah. Are you going to be interviewed as well? You should be, right? Yeah. Mm. I love our podcast. We get to eat hot dogs and things. We do. So it must be said that um, German, East German culinary invention is perhaps not as <laughs> elite as one might have hoped. Um, but nevertheless, it is rather tasty, so uh, I have no complaints. Yeah, I mean, this is working class people food, right? Absolutely. Bavarian barons are not eating these. So listen, you finish that up. I've got to go and uh, do my interview. Oh, OK. I'll be right back. OK. So, Pete, that was a fascinating first half for us watching the event. What was it like for you down on the touchline? Well, I mean, Ram's always going to be a difficult opponent. He's really fielded some tremendous facts, some fascinating history. Uh, I think we've got uh, work cut out for the second half. And has that first half performance made you think about maybe some tactics, bringing in some substitute facts potentially for the second half? Uh, yeah, I think I, I had some facts I was going to keep in reserve, but I really think I need to start with my big, my best lineup for the next half for sure. And uh, what's your predictions right now for how this is going to go what, what do you think is going to happen in the next 45 minutes well i think at the end of the day history is the real winner um i think we're going to pull out some excellent facts some entertaining and fascinating fun history uh and i think uh i think it's going to be a score for germany all right i'm back <laughs> how'd it go well you know i haven't had my half yet so uh, i just had to i didn't want to give too much away mm. but um Equally, I think uh, it's, at the end of the day, football is the real winner. <laughs> I've run out of sausage in my thing. Well, now it's just bread. Yeah, so now I'm going to go and get another one and be a completionist. Also, the multi-sausage catwurst is an innovation. You should get onto the uh, <laughs> State, uh, State Gastronomic Research Institute. <laughs> right, so... Man, that was good Frankenverter. Filled a gap, didn't it? It really did. So what's this drink, then? This is your Jägermeister. In our HHE shot glasses. So, what do we do? Do we drink this? We do. Do I down it? 
down it. Oh, cheers. We grief. cheers and we drink. Right, over my laptop. And we sing the Danish drinking song. Medicinal. Okay. Well, that came as a second wave halfway yeah, through me saying that was okay. You. That'll hit you. Oh, Oh, I've got to go for my interview. Oh, right. Okay, good luck. Have a good one. Cheers. So, Ryan, a very good first half, I think, there. How was it for you from your point of view? We we put our all into that. We, I mean, we really have worked very hard over the past week or so in preparation for this. Is there anything you could have done differently in that first half? Yeah, um, I mean, you can always you can always do better. Uh, you know, that's what I tell tell the guys. And um, you know, and we're, we're going to take away some lessons from this, which we'll um, we'll put into practice for our future games. And are you necessarily worried about what Pete is going to give you in the second half? You, do you think you're ready for it? No, we've done our we've done our research. We we sort of understand uh, where Germany is. Um, we we know the kinds of facts that they're they're likely to have. So uh, no, we're 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 fully prepped and ready for this. Okay, no chance of it going to extra time and penalties. So that's good. It means that uh, you're not going to be too tired to uh, to carry on and maybe you know whatever happens next in the competition then uh, you'll be ready for that that's right jim yeah we're we're hoping to get this sorted as soon as possible move on to the next round let's head back and join the action again for the second half all right how'd it go yeah all right okay good Um, right are you limber do we need to do any warming up or should we just run straight into the second half well i was thinking we should have a classic segment of orange halftime orange halftime orange i like it all right so i've got some here nice Funnily enough, I actually um, did a little Google, light Googling around the origin of the halftime orange. Yeah. I found nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nobody really? knew why they we have oranges at halftime particularly. Okay. So if anybody out there knows why we have halftime oranges, perhaps you would be so kind as to let us know at hhepodcast at gmail.com. Right, here we go. Mm, vitamin C. I can't help but feel your halftime snack is vastly healthier than what I had to offer. <laughs> I don't know why you're putting yours in bread, though, covering it in uh, in ketchup. That seems <laughs> gratuitous. I couldn't help it. Uh, the State uh, Gastronomic Research Centre said that everything is better in bread smothered in ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, the flavour of this is great. You're just eating the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm sucking the juice. I just woofed it right down. Yeah, we've got different attitudes towards our sections of orange. See, that's... that's. I'm eating the Danish way, and you're eating the German it's way. It's the German way, my friend. Which is best? You decide. Oh. Oh, oh that, right. That went everywhere. Vitamin C, invigoration, health. Right. I now have orange juice all over my laptop. I mean, my kit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, no, it really is over my kit. Uh, it's almost as if the German method is vastly more efficient and doesn't result in an absolute spread of orangey juices all over one's precious football top. Do you want me to run over there and punch you? <laughs> do, it, do a Ronnie <laughs> Norvig. Nor- Don't make me Ronnie Norvig, you. <laughs> Let's bring that back. Ron- poor old Ronnie Norvig, just about getting his life back together. And somehow history <laughs> yeah, happened yeah. everywhere. Brings doing a Ronnie Norvig back into common parlance. Oh, my Lord. Oh, that would be awful. Wouldn't I feel bad even talking about it. <laughs> I feel like I should have hired an actor to come running in here midway during your... <laughs> Going, Ronnie Norman! <laughs> just punch you in the face. <laughs> just at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. The stage is set. The talking, once again, finished at halftime. The players are back out on the pitch. The managers are there, stretching and raring to go. It's Germany's opportunity now. Let's go back to the action. 
Right, Germany. Germany. We've already established where Germany is, just under Denmark, mm. <laughs> which is middle of Europe, central Europe, middle Europa, if you will. It is a place of about 357,000 square kilometres. That's about a 65% of a France. Oh, that surprised me. I thought Germany was bigger than France. It's yeah. actually quite a lot smaller. I mean, perhaps it was at one point. Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> it's Germany and it's there's fluctuated Germany, isn't in it? size, hasn't it? Let's just <laughs> let's just put it say that. Uh, but uh, I do recall you trying to score a few trivial points in your description of how uh, Denmark was better than Germany because so, it was an intercontinental state. Yeah, yeah. And um, is Germany an intercontinental state? Well, what's the population of Denmark? Oh, we're going to go population. Are yeah, we? I'm going to go with are population. We? We're okay. going to top trump this. It was five point eight million. Yeah, eighty three million, my friend. Eighty three million people from whom to select the finest footballers the world has ever known. Yeah, that's true. So Germany has a flag, obviously. It's uh, had a number of flags <laughs> over its history, uh, which we won't uh, labour too much. Oh, a surprisingly deft touch there from the big man. That's uh, very admirable in this situation. And uh, it has a national anthem, and we will have a quick listen to the national anthem. Nice. I kind of hope that what you'll patch in is uh, David Hasselhoff <laughs> singing something. <laughs> but that's Germany. I don't want to dwell on Germany too much because people are aware of Germany. They were, what are they famous for? Sausages. What are they famous for? Football. What are they famous for? Famous Germans. There's one I could think well, of. Well, you see, and there's Austrian as well. So, <laughs> so We um, shouldn't have done Jägermeister before talking we about Germany. We probably shouldn't. But uh, We might have to re-record all of this. It's no, because it is relevant because actually our time period is 1964 and the war, the Second World War specifically for those people not aware, looms large actually in the landscape, even the decade afterwards. So our story is one of post-war recovery, in fact. So I know we made light slightly of Germany being Germany in the war, but uh, that's actually really pertinent to what we're going to talk about. Okay. People have been commenting on the subjects that the managers have, but... uh... It really is true, at this level, there are no easy topics to discuss on a history podcast. So actually, it may shock you to learn. So when I pulled the country Germany last week, it was like, okay, Germany. So then I start my investigations. And in fact, the question that I first had to answer was, which Germany? Yeah, of course. East and West, right? Well, East, West and Germany number three. Actually, for a while after World War II, there were three German nations, right? There was West Germany, as yeah. you identified, East Germany, and there was Saarland. Saarland Never the, heard of Saarland. Absolutely. The Saar, and neither had I. The Saar Protectorate was a, a French-controlled area, so it's where Germany borders France. Quite resource-rich, so that's why the French wanted to control it. And, and that had its own national football team from 1950 to 1956. <laughs> no way. So in that period, there was an East German team, a West German team, and a Saarland team. So three recognised German national teams. Okay, wow. Uh, 1954, France and West Germany ended the protectorate status. France wanted to just make an independent nation of Saarland, yeah. but they had a, a vote and the Saar's population voted 67% to just become part of West Germany. So for a, for a short period there, there was three German national teams and Saarland was one of them. Amazing. So they get absorbed into West Germany and then we get to what you mentioned, which is you've got East Germany and West Germany and that's basically what i'm going to be talking about right because rather than focusing on the championship there's two countries that are both germany and i'm going to talk about how football uh, represented them and how they engaged in through the medium of football 
Nice. So now we've got uh, East and West Germany, but I don't know if you are aware of the status of Berlin. No. So Berlin is a city that is in East Germany. It's fully enclosed by East Germany, but it is divided after the war into controlled areas controlled by the French, Americans, the UK and the Russians or the Soviet Union. Rather. Distinct areas for each of those? Or? Yeah, so literally the town is divided into controlled areas. But most importantly... So there's like a UK area and a Russian yeah, area. absolutely. Okay. Not like they were sharing control of one area. No. So right. each is like an almost independent entity. And the most important wow. division is you've got the east of Berlin, which is controlled by the Soviet Union and you've got the West of Berlin which is controlled by the Allies so right. we can probably munch them into East and West Berlin sure so what that means is you've got part of a town that is fully enclosed in East Germany that is part of West Germany yeah so that's a weird situation on its own and uh, things get obviously this is very emblematic of the cold war you've got east and west right next to each other you have um a period where the soviets tried to take berlin back by just blockading it and that was a period known as the berlin airlift when the people of the west just flew fleets and fleets of planes over to airdrop supplies into east berlin or sorry west berlin yeah to keep them going basically wow so it became like incredibly symbolically significant and that is important to football as well in what we're going to talk about. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to get away from politics in, in this era, right? Absolutely. And my topic is business. Mm -hmm. But what you will find is what I'm also going to talk about is basically this is the battle of two systems. So business is fundamentally a capitalist enterprise and you've got a capitalist system and you've got a non-capitalist system. Yeah, of course. So this is the way in which I'm going to be talking about business in football in Germany or Germanese in this case. Wunderbar. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was very well done. Thanks. They really have come out of the traps very fast today here at the HHE Stadium in Croydon. So we're going to start off in West Germany, if, if I may. You may. And we're going to start with a miracle. <gasps> is it Jesus? Uh, no, it is not. It is a footballing miracle. So as you may be aware that uh, there was the Second World War and Germany very much lost that war. It was a nation defeated. And it was, you know, as you might be after a significant war like that, it's a, it's a batter to one's self-esteem. So in 1954, there was a World Cup. Right. Okay. The West German team was in the World Cup and they make it to the World Cup final. Nice. Right. So 4th of July, 1954. And I'm going to try, try and say this with a straight face. On the 4th of July, 1954, in the Wankdorf Stadium in Bern, Switzerland. Wankdorf. The Wankdorf. Okay. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's the name of it. In the Wankdorf Stadium. <laughs> yeah, the Wankdorf, yeah. It's the World Cup final. Interestingly, the Wankdorf Stadium was the home of the football club Young Boys. And uh, it's a little bit of a fact for you there. With nothing else to say. Okay, you've got West Germany, who yeah. four years prior to this didn't even exist as a team. And then they're playing Hungary, right. known as the Mighty Magyars. Yeah, Magyars, yeah. Right? They have played... Magyar is what they call themselves, right? That's Yeah, Magyar is Hungarian for Hungarian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is 1954, right? The mighty Magyars have played since 1950, four years previously. They've played 30 games. Yeah. They have not lost. Oh, wow. This, this is, is why they're called team. the mighty Magyars, right? That's fascinating. Uh, in 1953, they went to Wembley and beat England, the first people to actually do that. Then just for good measure, played England again and beat them 7-1. Germany's team, semi-professional if you're lucky, <laughs> right? Uh, they were actually required to have a job as well as their, their footballing role. Okay. Uh, one of them ran a laundrette. Yeah. Right. 
So this is the two teams facing off in this World Cup final. Uh, so does anyone think Germany can win? Probably not. The, the unstoppable Hungarians versus the guy who runs a laundrette. <laughs> so if you had some Deutsche Marker, who are you going to put your Deutsche Marker Probably on? Probably pop them on the Magyars, wouldn't you? But the game starts eight minutes in. Hungary's 2-0 up. <laughs> wow. It's going very much according to expectations. Yeah, at my the start. money is safe. But then two minutes later, 10 minutes in, Germany get a goal back. Okay. It's 2-1 now. Something's getting interesting. The German team really step it up. Yep. Another eight minutes later, Germany score again. It's 2-2. Two, two. Nice. Right? Then it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Nobody yep. scores. Yep. It's 2-2 all the way through to the 84th minute. I love it. Six minutes from time, Germany's Helmut Rahn fires the ball into the bottom corner of the net. 3-2 to Germany. You are kidding. 1954, me. Germany wins the World Cup. Wow, okay. I am wearing a 1954 World Cup winning Germany shirt. Everyone wants to wear the shirt of a cup winner, and that's what I got to do. That's amazing. (laughs) And so that's the first World Cup that they'd won? It's the first World Cup that they've won. Is it the first ever World Cup that they'd taken part in? Uh, I don't know. Probably not, I would say. I mean, as West Germany, it gets complicated. Was it Germany or West Germany? But no, this game is known as the Miracle in Bern, or the (laughs) Wunder von Bern. I think what we might be seeing is an attempt to keep the pace up in the second half and make sure that it doesn't drop below that particular level that it needs to be at this level of international podcasting. So this is absolutely massive event, right? Because the nation was depressed, essentially, after the Second World War. And this was a moment of Germany, West Germany, rising up and getting self-respect again. Sure, absolutely. Right? So the, I mean, world respect. Absolutely. So a German writer, Friedrich Christian Delius, said, a guilt-ridden, inhibited nation was suddenly reborn. Wow. Right? Franz Beckenbauer, you may have heard of. I have, yeah. He said, for anybody who grew up in the misery of the post-war years, Bern was an extraordinary inspiration. The entire nation regained its self-esteem. It's incredible what a game can do. Right? A game of football and suddenly a whole nation is feels hope again. Well, and this is what's going to come across repeatedly is the, the sort of the potential of football as a means for your nation to actually feel good about itself. Yeah, a psychological boost. It's um, it's astonishing. So, I, I guess it works the other way as well, though, right? Like if you're constantly losing, perhaps there is that feeling of demoralization. Well, I think there's a middle country. ground to be had, isn't it? Because if you're constantly losing, you're probably just a sort of minnow nation that anything is is a success because you right. always lose. I think it's if you constantly underperform, that's where the risk lies, where you think mm. you think you should be doing better and you're not. Yeah. If no, you I were Liechtenstein, I can imagine they're pretty much okay with <laughs> not having won a World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> they have it enough. They Come do, on. they do. I'm sorry, Liechtenstein. So that's, I wanted to start there because that's kind of the, the, the rebirth of uh, West German football, particularly. Also, if you're West Germans, are they looking on with jealous eyes? So it, it's quite complicated. Um, at that time, I'm not sure if East Germany was recognised at that time, because also bear in mind that there were nations not recognising each other's existence even at, at this in this period. Okay. So I'm not sure if they were in that one. But what we're about to cover is quite a lot of this ground of, of how two nations that don't even acknowledge each other's existence can interact through the medium of football. Okay, cool. Right, so West Germany's back in business, as it were. See what I did there? Back yeah. in business. So I'm going to get straight to 1964 now. So I'm going to talk about the 1963-64 season. Yeah. Because obviously seasons cross years, so I can't just do the one year. And as it happens, my good fortune is that 63-64 was the, the year the Bundesliga was invented. It was the first year of the Bundesliga. And the Bundesliga is like the, the, the top league. league the, the top, top league. main best league in West Germany in this case. Okay. 
So West Germany was a capitalist nation, unlike East Germany. And so their football was professional, Okay, which we'll contrast later with the East German approach. Uh, professional, but not super professional, funnily enough. They had pay caps in place and you could get in trouble for paying too much to your players and too many inducements really. to your players. Now, this caused a problem for the Berlin clubs. Because you remember we said Berlin was a sort of enclave of West Germany entirely encompassed within East Germany. Yeah. Consequently, it's not a place that a lot of people necessarily want to go to. So if you're trying to attract players from all of West Germany, yeah, the, the thought of being in this little island of West Germany, otherwise surrounded by the East, isn't massively appealing. So this is a problem for Berlin, West Berlin teams because they couldn't really get the players to come and play there because of the stresses of being in, in East Berlin particularly. So clubs, as they will, would need to find a way and business being business, the teams would find a way to pay above the pay caps. And one such club was a, a team, one of the best teams in Berlin called Hertha BSC. Hertha BSC in 1963 and 1964 did what they had to do to attract their talent, right? Uh, unluckily for them, in February 1965, they get audited. <laughs> okay. And you couldn't write a script like this. So the auditor comes in and he goes, uh, so these players that got these payments that are way above the pay cap. Yeah. Uh, what, what are these? And they're like, uh, snacks? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, they, they basically went, this is obviously you've overpaid, you've done sneaky pay payments okay. to the players and you've got to be punished. So the punishment was to get booted out of the league down to the next level. Okay, yeah. Now this is a problem for West Germany because this was the only Berlin team that was going to be in the Bundesliga and they don't want a top league without a Berlin team because Berlin is super symbolic of East and West Germany. So not having a top flight team in West Berlin is a political no-no. Yeah. So they go, right, we need a Berlin team, we need a Berlin team. So they look around all the other Berlin teams. So... <laughs> They go to a team called Tennis Borussia Berlin who uh, and say, I'm, I'm not clear, there's a couple of versions of this as to whether they offered them this place in the Bundesliga or they didn't. Okay. Uh, but in any event, they, these guys who had already lost in the playoffs to various other non-Berlin teams were like, well, that's not fair. We can't be just well, yeah, shunted up there. Suddenly promoted so to they, a league just because you need someone. Right. So they went to the second best team from Berlin that didn't make it into the Bundesliga. And the second best team was uh, Spandauer SV. And they went, well, that's not fair. We don't want to do that. That's crazy. Oh, well, that's nice. So they go to the third best team in Berlin, oh, no. a team called Tasmania Berlin. Tasmania, raising I its name know. again. That was why I had a little chuckle to myself when you mentioned that earlier. But oh, yeah, funny. Tasmania makes a little re mm. reappearance. Tasmania Berlin, the third best Berlin-based team in the league. They said, would you like to be in the Bundesliga, the top Premier League? And they said, well, yes, yeah, I think we yes, are. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, all right, brilliant, good news. You're in the Bundesliga. Brilliant. Now, side note, the two teams who were being demoted went, Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. So what you're saying is these guys who aren't even the best team in Berlin <laughs> get a promotion and we're yeah. getting demoted. And then the Bundesliga in Fellas went, oh, yeah, you're right, that's really unfair. So that year they went from 16 clubs to 18 clubs. Nobody got demoted. Okay. And to this day it's 18 clubs actually. Because of that. Because Amazing. of that. Okay, cool. Oh, and with a fact like that, he certainly knows where Google is. So great. You've got a Berlin team. This is this is going to go well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Just don't get relegated. About that. Oh, okay. <laughs> how did Tasmania Berlin do in their new season in the Bundesliga? 
It's almost like they could have foreseen the fact that the third best team in <laughs> Berlin might struggle to remain in the Bundesliga. You'd, th- you'd think that, but um, so so this team, bearing in mind, they found out that they were in the Premier League equivalent um three weeks before the league started. Oh, Most of them were on a holiday, and they're like, uh, so could you pop back because we're yeah. in the top flight league now? Um, these guys were super guys with jobs, you know. I in the, even in the Bundesliga, they were kind of they were caps, but these guys would just guys pretty close to amateur status right so the captain a guy called Hans Gunter Becker said the club wanted us to give up our jobs practically overnight I told my employer I could only do half days (laughs) (laughs) and then he ends it with we all knew it was only going to last one season (laughs) this is not good that's the attitude of a team that you need exactly so they recruit one one real professional player (laughs) a guy called Horst Sismaniak Horst Zizmaniak. Okay. Uh, and the newspaper reported he looked, quote, completely out of place in a team of manual workers. Oh, no. So, Tasmania, Berlin, everybody. So, fun if you're a supporter, though. Can you imagine? Well, you you were likely to go to the first game because they had a crowd of 81,000. That is huge. Right? For, for the third best team in yeah. Berlin. They win 2 0 <laughs> over a team called Karlsruhe. Okay. So could this be the beginning of a rags to riches glory story? I find that interesting because the, every now and then there are football games where you've got a complete outsider that goes on to win and everyone's shocked by it. But actually, when you think about it, if you're preparing for a game because you're a giant football club, you don't know these players. You don't know what the tactics are. You've probably not studied their past previous games a lot of their games might not have been you know modern days televised or, or seen you're kind of going in blind as opposed yeah, to true. The, well, your normal the preparation clubs. doesn't really apply it's that sort of freaky upset isn't it you can imagine what do we know about the left winger well he's a plumber <laughs> <laughs> he's got great welding skills <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so that's it game one 81,000 people see them win 2-0 amazing is this the beginning of something no, 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 it's no, it name. really is not. Okay. They then go on to lose or draw the next 31 games. <laughs> the crowd thins out a bit, reaching a low of 857 people in one of their that's January fixtures. Yeah, that's uh, it went from 81,000 to 857. You could probably name them all personally. <laughs> uh, they actually only won one other game in the entire season, the second to last match. How they pulled that out of the bag, I do not know. Amazing. So they are in fact remembered today as the worst ever team to play top flight football. <laughs> <laughs> they set a number of records which stand to this day, including lowest point total, eight, fewest wins, two, most losses, 28, <laughs> fewest goals scored, 15, most scored against, 108, <laughs> and the lowest match attendance of our 857. Wow. Oh, and he really gave that fact 110%. I mean, the problem is that with that, from your business perspective, is you've got ticket sales to to pay your players with if they're professional, right? And if you're getting 80,000 coming through your doors, you're easily able to pay those players and attract new players and keep going. If those numbers go down to 800 <laughs> if you've got basically 10 spectators to every player that's there's not less the bills, chance you're going to be able to retain your best talent yeah yeah they um unless they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart or passion i believe they're still a team to this day uh, in the okay. lower leagues it will perhaps not surprise you to learn didn't go great for them i guess oh, it's right. a real question isn't it like would you take your moment in the sun yeah knowing yeah why wouldn't you well yeah 
Right. Well, the first two didn't. Well, no, but <laughs> they, they had hopes of making hopes it legitimately. Of at yeah, some point. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> which is fair. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, if you knew that there was a chance you were going to get promoted anyway and properly, uh, in the eyes of all your competitors. Yeah, you wouldn't want that tainted victory, right, would you? Exactly. But if you had no hope, then <laughs> suddenly you're right, in the Bundesliga for a year. Tasmania. <laughs> Worst case, one season, you make a bit of extra money. I think it's great. <laughs> so that's that's West German football in 63, 64, nudging into 65. Okay. East German have a different approach. They're under communism, right? Yeah. So business is not really uh, approved of, but uh, industry is a thing. State-controlled industry is how things are done. Profit isn't really a thing. Teams and players aren't professional because that's business and that's not what mm. they're all about. But they also have a top-tier league, the uh, Oberliga. So sport is still a thing then? Sport is communism. a massive thing. Okay. But instead of being coalescing as their own business entities, what actually happens is that sports teams become attached to industries. Oh. So what happens is you have the railway team, the army team, the... Well, in fact, so you don't have professional players, but what will happen is the power station team mm-hmm. will have a team, but they want to do well, so they say, oh, well, that guy's really good at football. Let's give him a job in the power plant and that right. job is train play football all day long. Okay, right, right, right. So you've got <laughs> non-professional players who are actually representatives of an industry and so they're all but professional but sort of on the books they are employees who are just playing football for the, the, the works team. Okay. You would have noticed there are sort of football team names in Eastern Europe that sort of, sort of recur and that's because of this background. This happened across Eastern Europe. So a team that's a locomotive is a railway team. I've, I've heard, yeah, Locomotive Moscow is one. All right, so you may have heard, probably I didn't hadn't heard this, but Vorvorts mm. is a is the name that you get a team named with Vorvorts in. They were army teams. Not heard of that. Uh, Dynamo. Oh, yeah, Dynamo Kiev. So Dynamo, the police and security services teams. No way, really. Yeah. That's fascinating. I did not know that. This was a fact that, uh, interestingly, wasn't used in preparations. However, it's been drafted into the squad at this late stage because of an injury to another fact. So here's the thing, right? So again, we're in Berlin. Berlin's an important place. So the head of the security services, the Stasi, basically, a guy called Eric Mielke, big football fan, big communism fan, (laughs) combines his passion, right? And he says, football success will highlight even more clearly the superiority of our socialist order in the area of sport. So this is basically, if we beat everyone else at football, that shows that communism is brilliant. Yeah, okay. I, I can see that, yeah. So exactly in the same way as in West Germany, we saw them go, well, we need a Berlin side because we have to represent. He's the same way. He says we need a big side in, in East Berlin and we haven't got one at the moment. So the way he goes about uh, doing this, he's, he's the head of the security services, so he's a powerful, powerful man. Right. And he's also a horrible, horrible man. He has personally killed people. Oh, um, okay. He's the secret police. This isn't the oh. police. This is the secret police. Right. So he decides East Germany needs a big sign. So he gets the best facilities, the best coaching, the best nutrition. But he also phones the nation's best team, which is a team called Dynamo Dresden, and says, pack your bags, you're Dynamo Berlin now. So when the head of the secret police says, you've now moving to Berlin and you play for them, you go, okay, okay, I guess I'll come, right? So that's your, that's your transfer window, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so this happened in 1954. They just moved the team wholesale, the best team, chucked them in Berlin because they needed a good team in Berlin. Both sides were feeling the same thing. Actually, this happened, this, this went on for a while, but in 1963, because football actually became weirdly quite powerful, yeah. the government had to agree that players should only change clubs if they actually wanted to. Oh. I mean, you would hope that wouldn't need legislation, but apparently that was a thing. <laughs> Which means that at some point that actually happened and someone was like, I don't want to go. The, the whole of Dresden, well, none of the Dresden players wanted to go. They just got moved. There was yeah. no choice in the matter. 
Well, like you say, secret head of secret police. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is a killer, essentially. Yeah. So this is how Dynamo Berlin is born. Dynamo Berlin is basically taken from Dynamo Dresden. Uh, you'll notice they're both called Dynamo because they're both police teams. Police teams, yeah. Uh, Dynamo uh, Berlin go on to dominate the league. They have everything on their side. They've got, obviously, the players, the facilities and everything else. And also the referees. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, like this is a team you don't want to necessarily annoy or get on the wrong side of. Right, because yeah. uh, it's it's tense isn't it so apparently a former east german recipe uh referee called bernd heinemann said after one defeat of berlin the referees were summoned and told something like that mustn't happen anymore oh <laughs> wow wow and that's a very controversial thing to happen of course and you would never see uh, particularly pete maybe bringing in paul dursley and demanding something similar of him in the post-match analysis so that's what's going on in Berlin, uh, and that is the sort of the regular team football. But national national football is obviously still also a thing. Mm. So 1964 is the Euros year that we are talking about. I'm not going to talk about it a lot because I'm going to try and focus on this Germany versus Germany thing. But very quickly, West Germany are, in, are described as did not enter. Okay. No, no West German presence at all. Uh, East Germany were in the first 16. Mm-hmm. But they went out, they lost to Hungary, ironically. <laughs> no way. <right. laughs> um, but what I thought was interesting was, you know, you talked about qualifying for the, the final, was the, the tournament part. Yeah, the actual tournament. The actual yeah. tournament part actually only had four teams in. It only had okay. Denmark, Spain, Hungary and the Soviet Union. I guess 1964, they didn't have the big TV and everything and, and yeah. more games means more money. It was just a, a spectacle. And it ended up in a final, Spain versus the Soviet Union. Spain won. Uh, thanks in part to a sterling performance from Luis Suarez. Wait, what? Yeah, but the, mid, the midfield player for Spain was a guy called Luis Suarez. Really? <laughs> yeah. And Luis Suarez is a player now, that's why we're... Yeah, who I've heard of, which makes him very famous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> famous for biting. Oh, really? Yeah, he bit people <laughs> during the game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's famous for other things. But... I like the way you said that so casually. Oh, and he slides in with a good one there. Um, so that I just wanted to mention that because we are supposed to be talking about the Euros, but uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. And that's because in 1964, mm-hmm. it was a Euros year, but it was also an Olympic year. Okay. So that means there's another football championship to watch, Olympic football. You talked a little bit about Olympic football. Now I'm going to talk. I mean, personally, I'm more of an intercalated Olympic oh, Games well, fan. Yeah, this is the, the more standard Olympic. The well, intercalated, I think, has faded away somewhat by the I don't time. know. I'm... <laughs> I was there before it was popular. So here's the thing. In Olympic football, the East and West German teams didn't play each other. They weren't part of a national circuit. But you, what you'll hear is that the, only, the East and West German teams only ever played each other once, they say. Okay. Which is, is true in some ways. And that was in the 1974 World Cup. But that's not true because actually in 1964, it was an Olympic year and football was in the Olympics. Yeah. Now, this is where it gets weird. Initially, the West Germany blocked the East from being part of the Olympics, but uh, they eventually let in East Germany. But the Olympic Committee wouldn't allow Western East Germany to compete. They said, you can come, but only as an all-German united team of Germany. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because they, they've done that in with England before, where they're like, you, you have to be a Great Britain team. Right. Yeah. Similar sort of thing. England. Yeah. Now, unsurprisingly, East and West Germany did not go, <laughs> let's pick the best and just go Germany and we can do right. this. They make a, a competition out of it. So they went, well, look, okay, so what we'll do is we'll have some pre-games. Whoever wins the pre-tournament yeah. can send their team as the United team. Oh, Germany. really? Okay, yeah. right. So they're not, we're not going to play together, whatever the case. No, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is have a competition amongst ourselves. Whoever's the better Germany can be United Germany, which is uh, about as uh, metaphoric as you can get. True, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So the, the first, they did this to, for two Olympics, the 60 and the 64. <laughs> for the 1961s, they played these games. They were called Geisterspieler, ghost games. And they, they were oh, called wow. that because these teams played one game in East Germany and one in West Germany. No spectators. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they had officials and press came. That was it. They are spooky, those games. Right? There's yeah. no, oh, the ball's in the net. Okay. All right. Sure. <laughs> it's like training, I guess. So 1964 was slightly different. They did allow some spectators. So I guess and, it was and a just, better game. Just to confirm, the reason they didn't allow spectators wasn't for any other reason other than you couldn't allow people out of either West or East Germany to go and visit the stadium to then yeah, go back I again. Yeah, I mean, there was a, and East Germany particularly also had a problem with people defecting. Right. So yeah, so yeah free travel was not <laughs> yeah. quite as okay as it is now. Yeah. Okay. So who won for 1964? Well, West Germany had a disadvantage because the Olympics is an amateur event and West German football was professionalized, which meant Ah, West Germany could not send all its professional players. So yeah, so East Germany have this huge advantage, which is that they're supposedly amateur players who aren't really amateur at all, are qualified to play in the Olympics, whereas all the professional players in West Germany are not. So they play these ghost games and East win and they go on to qualify for the Olympic Games and they go on to take the bronze medal. No way. So happy days for United Germany. (laughs) Entirely consisting of East German players. (laughs) And did they share the the spoils? Uh, No, no, they did not. They went, no, 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 no. Our system is substantially better than yours. Ha 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 ha. Also, take all these performance enhancing drugs. Is that true? Uh, yes, the East Germany was absolutely notorious for its extensive doping program, and it very much treated sport as a sort of extension of the Cold War. Football, ironically, did not benefit as much as other areas. Uh, one journalist once said to a German East German football player, why don't we have any particularly tall players? And he replied, because they are all made to do rowing. So oh, I see. So, <laughs> other yeah. Olympic events took priority in terms wow. of the East German doping sporting industry. Oh, and that is controversial. Oh, they'll be talking about that in the papers tomorrow morning. So good news for East Germany. But there was, as I said, one game, yeah. one game where East met West for reals. Nice. This is the 1974 World Cup. West Germany played the East the only time at their international level in for 41 years. They were both in the same group of the World Cup. They meet each other and they play one game. East Germany beat West Germany 1-0. Okay. So that makes them a team, right? I guess, yeah. Except West Germany won the World Cup that year. (laughs) Wait, how? Because it was a group game. Oh, I see. Right, okay. So they weren't knocked out by losing, but they then went on to win the whole thing. So East Germany won the only time they ever met, and it was actually the same year that the other team, the West Germans, went on to actually win the World Cup. These Germans like to win things. You notice that. They do a huge amount of that. He had all the time in the world to play that fact, and he did it with aplomb. So Germany obviously got reunited. It became a powerhouse of football that we know today. It's won several World Cups. Uh, let's take a moment to reflect back on our Hungarian friends, the mighty Magyars, who were this unstoppable force at the beginning of our tale. Yeah. What this game needs is a truly killer fact. We're expecting it any second now. That's the best they've ever done. They've never reached that stage since that date. Oh, he's fluffed it. Oh, the... Oh, the crowd are disappointed with that one. So that is the story of East and West German football in and around 1964. And there it is. The referee blows his whistle, bringing an end to the proceedings here in this festival of podcasting. I think it's all over. It is now. So fresh off the pitch, I get to talk to Pete. And Pete, how do you think that went? 
Uh, it was good. I mean, we were slightly nervous. Our facts were a lot older than Ryan's facts, obviously. We were at a, an older time period, but I think uh, the boys got out there and they did everything that I hoped they would. So that experience, do you think, paid off in the end? Yeah, I think they, they showed a lot of heart and a lot of courage. They dug deep and they really brought the goods. And uh, what do you think that the people back home will be thinking of that performance from you? Do you think that uh, that will go down well with the public? I think, yeah, I think we really put on a kind of an entertaining podcasting delight that people enjoy. I think at the end of the day, uh, we did everything we could and uh, I'm happy with the result. Pete, thank you very much. And let's talk to Ryan. Ryan, uh, you've just been watching down there on the touchline. Um, how did that work out for you? Well, you know, I mean, it was pretty much as expected. Pete has obviously put in a lot of effort and a lot of work. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the greater competitors that one of us can can face. Um, so, you know, it was a, a pleasure and a delight taking this team on. And everyone was the winner from watching such a competitive battle. And I think that's a great message to send to those uh, children at home looking up to uh, two podcast titans like yourselves. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget that we're going to have the official insight and analysis on this performance in our sister podcast The Verdict with everyone's favourite pundit Paul Dursley Oh Christ And with the game done here we can now go live over to the Dursalator Centre in Chiswick for the draw for the next round Thank you very much Jim Hello and welcome to the draw for the next round here in the Dursalator head office in the prestigious Chiswick Shopping Centre Parking Annex. Uh, there are 250 places in today's drawer, including Dursalator Debutants Tropic of Cancer, the Equator and the newly promoted African Union. Wild cards are included, while additions to topics include Newcomer's Parenthood, the Extra Mile and Adding Insult to Injury, all fresh into the mix. Joining me here are two former players who participated in previous classic episodes, Krampus from the Traditions in Austria episode and The Pope from episode 19, Business in Liechtenstein. Hello to you both. Hello, John. I am Krampus. <laughs> yes, indeed. Hello. The Pope here. You may kiss the ring. You've both been involved in previous episodes, so uh, what is your advice for Peter on this new one? Uh, make it funny and full of facts. Although he is the devil, I find myself agreeing with Mr. Krampus. Yes. One must apply oneself to the holy trinity of podcasting, honesty, integrity and comedy. Okay, thank you both. Let's get on with the draw. Now, as with previous episodes, the first round drawer is location. Uh, the Dursalator is humming away in readiness. Krampus, would you mind giving the button a good hard press and let's get going. Okay, John. Uh, the location is... Senegal. Senegal. Well, that's the first time that the plucky African nation has been selected by the Desolator. De Pope, uh, would you mind pressing the button to select our time period? Not of course, my child. And the time is... Bronze Age. That's 3,000 to 1,300. 
before our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, a second appearance there for Bronze Age, appearing first in episode 12, Science in Turkey. And uh, finally, Krampus, would you please desolate the third section and give us our topic? Okay, John. And the topic is... Flight! Interesting, that is the first time that we have seen flight in the competition so far. Yes, John, I hope we'll be entertaining, like uh, the slaughter of innocents. So there we are, flight in Senegal during the Bronze Age, that's 3000 to 1300 BCE. So, before Jesus Christ. Thank you, gents, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes the Desolator draw. Peter can start his preparation for the match and I look forward to joining you all for that episode on the 15th of July. So that means all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. I've been Jim Colson talking in this ridiculous accent all the way through this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I just can't keep that up anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can find out more about me at bewilderdad.com. I do a podcast called the Loose Dads Podcast. Search for that where you get your podcasts. And um, yeah, I'm really chuffed to be on History Happened Everywhere. It's, it's my favourite. Thanks, Ryan and Pete. Thank you. Wait, he's not a commentator. I don't know where do you get him from. I he just dialed in on this Zoom call. I thought he was. I thought you got him. No, no, no. Oh man! Gonna oh, no. have to go now. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, this really has been great podcasting, but a lot of people will say in the tabloid papers, can they do it on a rainy Tuesday night in Scunthorpe?